So if this is your first time at RUF, just to tell you a little bit about who we are. Um, at RUF, we believe that the Bible teaches that uh, what makes someone a Christian isn't their good work for God. That, in fact, what makes someone a Christian is their faith in God's good work for them. Um, and that's a really important distinction. What saves a person is God's work for the sake of a person, not a person's work for the sake of God. And that means that God can save really bad people because it's not up to us to save ourselves. And so at RUF every week, we gather around God's word and we consider what it has to say to people who are sinners like me, like us. And if you're here and you're figuring out what you believe about faith, if you're here and you've been a Christian your whole life, uh, all of us need to hear what the Bible claims about a God who moves towards sinners and loves them. And that's what we're going to do again tonight. We're going to keep going through the book of Exodus. Uh, We're looking at this second book of the Bible. And one of the reasons we're doing that is uh, this is kind of the the seminal salvation story of the Old Testament. It's the, it's the big salvation that God works for his people in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is an important part of God's word for us to understand, partially because later in the book of Luke, Jesus tells his disciples that all of the Old Testament was pointing to him, that he fulfills all the Old Testament. So if we're going to consider who Jesus is, we have to, we have to know the Old Testament and study it and see how it's pointing to our need for a savior and how Jesus fulfills that. So where we find ourselves in the passage tonight, God has just rescued his people by letting them walk through the Red Sea while the Egyptian army who formerly had been enslaving them is chasing them down. And God guides his people through the Red Sea. They cross on dry land. And when Egypt pursues them, God destroys the army of Egypt. And now they finally made their way through slavery, made their way out of their master's grip. And the place that God takes them is very surprising. It's probably not where Israel thought they were going. God takes them into the wilderness. So let's look at this together. Exodus 16. I know it's a long passage, but these Old Testament stories are just long. So let's read it together. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And then verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer. It's like half a gallon. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. And it bred worms and stank. Ooh. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. When, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. This is God's word to us tonight. Let's pray and ask him to bless the reading of it. Father, we thank you that we can gather around your word, and we pray now that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, There's a podcast I like to listen to a lot called This American Life. A couple years ago, they did a story about a boy named Daniel. Now, uh, Daniel grew up And for the first seven and a half years of his life, he lived in a crib in Romania. Daniel stayed in that crib all day and all night. He had another boy who was in the crib with him named Neku. And they only ever got out of the crib to use the restroom or to eat. Other than that, they were in the crib. To give you an idea, Owens ate. So this kid was in a crib until he was almost eight years old. He didn't know the names of anyone who took care of him. He was in um, a row of cribs that contained a hundred children. And uh, he stayed there in the orphanage in Romania, never once going outside. The only, uh, the only view that he had of the outside world was a window into the sky of the city that was um, where they lived. And he could see uh, the colors change of the lights driving, of cars driving by. He could see 
Um, the, the color of the sky changed, but his world was incredibly small, and his world was loveless. Daniel said he never longed for a family because he didn't know what it was. He said, the way he put it, a kid who never ate chocolate wouldn't know what chocolate was or even want it. And I didn't know what family was. But after he was seven and a half years old, thousands of miles away, Heidi and Rick Solomon, living in Ohio, decided to adopt Daniel. And he showed up at their house, a detached, loveless child who didn't want a family, who had no idea how to love or how to be loved. And they were told that he would never learn how to love. And Daniel, because of all the things that had happened to him, the trauma of of living in that crib for so long, he had a ton of anger issues. He had a ton of trust issues. And he took them out on those around him and on, in, in his new world, in his house in Ohio. He put over a thousand holes in the wall of his house. Multiple professionals came in uh, to help him and many of them left bleeding. He gave his mom a black eye and then he smiled when he saw her hurting. The case manager um, sat down with Heidi Daniel's mother, and he said, Daniel's going to hurt you. He's going to put you in the hospital. And when you're in the hospital, Daniel will be in the juvenile detention center. And eventually your husband's going to leave you. That's how this plays out. I've seen it before. And Heidi's response was, so what are we going to do to help him? They were told that Daniel was homicidal as more counselors and people got involved in his life. At one point, he held a knife to his mother's neck. And while she's explaining and telling this back, the background of this, the interviewer in the podcast I was listening to interrupts her, and she's, she says, how do you love someone who's homicidal towards you? And Heidi simply says, because he's my son. So what they decided to do, there was a therapist who had an idea of what they could do for Daniel, and they call, it's called attachment therapy. And it is extreme. What they did for Daniel is um, Heidi and Daniel spent three months literally side by side with one another. She quit her job. He was taken out of school. They had to recreate the bond that never occurred when he was born. And so what that meant is he was not allowed to ask for anything. For those three months, he had to see that there's somebody else who will anticipate your needs, who will feed you, will take care of you because they love you. And whenever he would uh, resist, if he didn't like it, uh, if he disobeyed, instead of getting a time out, he got a time in and he was forced to hug his mom. For punishment. <laughs> he got time in. They would sit on the couch next to each other and she would hug him and he had to learn that she loved him. He had to learn dependence on someone else and he did and it changed his life forever. 
And I want you to have this picture of Daniel in your mind as we consider this passage tonight. Because this is a picture of what the Christian life is. It's a, the Christian life, the Bible claims that the only way that you will flourish as a human being, truly, is to know this. That the only way that you can live is to depend upon the one, the one true God who loves you. The only way that you can really live is to depend on the one true God who loves you. And so God rescues these people out of the crib that they've been living in. This bondage that they've been living in. A loveless life. He rescues them, but now he's going to have to give them time in. They're going to spend time in the wilderness. And God doesn't take them into the wilderness because, because he's gonna, he wants to hurt them or he wants to be harsh with them. He takes them into the wilderness because he loves them. But you see very clearly here that Israel does not trust what's going on. They are not comfortable with this. And you see it early in verse 3. I mean, they've literally just finished. In, in Exodus 15, they've been singing about how God has rescued them from Egypt. And now only a few verses later, already in verse 3, they're complaining about their situation. And they're totally misremembering how things went down. Look at verse 3. Man, remember when we were in Egypt and we would just sit around by meat pots and eat, our, eat bread to the full? Remember how great it was in Egypt? How all of our needs were taken care of? And now they feel like God... He, he said, has God just brought us out here to kill us with hunger? And it can feel like that when you're in the wilderness. Some of you are probably in the wilderness right now. Where maybe you feel like, is, what is God doing to me right now? Has he forgotten me? Does he care about me? Does he care about my friend? Does he care about the people that I love? Who I see hurting? It can feel the Christian life can really feel like the wilderness. That is the life of a Christian in many ways. And that's the picture that we're getting here. And it's so interesting how God responds to them because he doesn't say, like, how dare you? you know, I just rescued you. I listened to your groaning. I brought you out of a land of slavery. How dare you question me like that? No, what he does is in verse four, he's like, I'm about to make it rain. God's gonna make it rain. But it's bread, okay? Like actual bread, not like money bread. God's going to make it rain bread. He doesn't scold them. He actually is giving them grace. He's giving them something that they don't deserve. And they still don't trust him, y'all. Even after he responds to their grumbling with grace, they still don't trust him. And, and you can see it in two ways. First, you can see how they hoard the resources that God gives them. Look at verse 19. God gives Moses instructions about, okay, here's the deal. There's going to be bread every single day. I'm going to give you this day your daily bread. Okay? And they go out, and 
there's some people start like thinking in the back of their mind, okay, like we're in a desert right now in the Middle East. And what if we don't get bread tomorrow? I mean, this is freaky stuff. We just woke up and there's bread on the ground everywhere. And we can just pick it up and eat it. And it's delicious. By the way, like kind of cool. God could have made it like flavorless, like vitamins or something. Later, I've cut out some of the verses. I know it's hard to believe in this passage, but I actually cut out some of the verses. But it's, this bread is called manna and it's like, tastes like honey and it's enjoyable and it's good. And surely they're sitting thinking like, what if, what if it's not here tomorrow? So what they begin to do is some of them begin to hoard it. They begin to keep some for the next day just in case. And God has told them not to do that. Why? Because he wants them to learn to depend. He wants them to learn to depend on them. And what lies behind their hoarding, the reason behind this is that they're thinking, if I don't take care of myself, no one will. Like, we're in the wilderness. I need to look out for myself. And that's what we do. We may not be hoarding bread in your house, but we do hoard things. We hoard our time. I can't hang out with you tonight, actually, because I have a test in two weeks. What? You can't hang out with me for like an hour? You have a test in two weeks? Yeah. Why do we do that? What's the thought behind that? If I don't look out for myself, no one else will. If I'm not taking care of all of the details of my life and using my time for myself all the time, then I'm not going to be okay. We do that with our time. We do that with our money. If I don't have all of this saved away, if I don't build up my 401k and my life insurance policy and my all this stuff and like just get myself kind of financially bulletproof, then no one else is going to look out for me. And what God is doing, the irony is of this is that the God who owns everything, the God who made everything, he has saved them and he's adopted them. Later in the book of Hosea, God talks about um, Israel and he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. See, when he called them out of Egypt, this is an adoption story that's happening. God is making them his kids. And these kids have just been adopted by the father who owns everything. And yet they're hoarding crumbs of bread because they don't trust that he'll show up tomorrow. But not only are they hoarding, the second way we see their self-dependence and self-reliance is their refusal to rest. Verse 22, they're told, gather twice the amount of bread on the sixth day. Why do they do that? Because verse 26 says, the seventh day is supposed to be a Sabbath, a day for you to rest. But on verse, in verse 27, what do they do? The seventh day comes and some people go out looking for bread. They won't rest. God has freed them 
from a life of slavery. And yet, what do they begin acting like? As soon as they get out of, you can put your hand down. You know, a, yeah, thanks, Seth. Um, <laughs> he saves them out of slavery, and they start acting like, actually, answer, what do they start acting like? What do you think? Blah. blah that's right. They start acting like blah. <laughs> they start acting like slaves again, right? Man, why do they do that? Do you know why? Because it's a lot easier to take the slaves out of Egypt than to take Egypt out of the slaves. They're acting like they're living in Egypt again. They're not trusting that they've been adopted, that they're okay. And look, we do the exact same thing. What our inability to rest, which God actually commands us to do, you know, I don't know if you've ever read through the Ten Commandments, but like usually you'll kind of like, if you're kind of mowing through them, you're like, yeah, I get it. Like, don't lie. Okay, cool. Don't steal. Got it. Don't like kill people. Cool. Got that. Sounds good. Every once a day, don't do anything. Rest. And we get to that and we're like, no, what is rest really? Like, I don't even know, you know, and we just kind of start like figuring out how we can game the system. Methinks that we protest too loudly. Because that's getting at something at the heart of us. That we just don't think we'll be okay if we rest. We actually don't believe that. That the God, here's the irony, the God who's done all the work for us to be okay, says it's okay to rest. You don't have to work. You're not going to be okay because of your work. You're okay because of my work for you. And so you can rest. See, fathers know the best gifts to give their kids. Some of y'all have heard me tell a story, but it's about Owen. So I'm going to tell it since you're here. Okay. You like this story. I think maybe you've heard this. When Owen was one at his birthday, when you're a kid, all you've eaten at this point in your life at the trap house is milk and these like spinach flavored rice puff cereals. That's pretty much all you get to eat at our house for your first year of life. It's a bummer, right? But Owen loved, <laughs> Owen loved his rice puffs. He loved them. But now it's his birthday. And my wife, Chrissy, makes him what's called a smash cake. This is like a new thing in like young mom culture. Some of y'all probably seen these. But like you make this like elaborate giant sized cupcake And then you just put it in front of your kid and let them do whatever they want with it. And it's like a big, like, cupcake. So we get everyone around, all of our friends and family, happy birthday to you, cupcake in front of Owen, big smash cake, and we just kind of step back. And this kid who's only ever had milk and, like, spinach cereal puffs now has the most delicious thing in his life ever placed in front of him, and he won't touch it. He didn't want it. And it, he, we're like, oh, and just eat it. Just like do whatever you want to do. Like smash, smash it. Like put it in your hair, put it in your face. It's going to be great. Like whatever you want to do, just do it. And he wouldn't touch it. And then I did something that he thought was very mean. I took his hand and I put it in the smash cake just to like familiarize himself. But now he was sticky and he was upset and crying because he didn't want to be, he didn't like to be sticky. So then 
I take, I take his hand, which now has icing on it, and I start moving it towards his face. And he's like beginning to really cry and scream. And Chrissy's like, John, like there's my family's watching. Like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, it's going to be okay. And he's like, oh, and as soon as that cake touches his mouth, his eyes just kind of go like this. And he's like, oh, I didn't know cake existed, but I love it. And you smashed it, and it was awesome. And we had to give you a bath like five minutes later. It was wonderful. But here's the thing. Why did I want him to have that? Because I'm his dad, and I love him. I wanted him to enjoy this. I wanted, he didn't know the gift that we were trying to give him was really good. And I think that that's what we're like with rest. Our God, if you're a Christian, like, your God is your father, and he's this great gift for you that he wants to give you, that he's earned for you. And he's telling you, don't act like a slave anymore. You're free. You can rest. Like really, once a week, on Sunday when you worship, you can come and just rest and be done. for the, And stop feeling guilty about not working. Actually Rest. Um, so here's the thing. The reason that God does that for us is because he loves us. And that makes him very trustworthy, I would suggest to you. That even though Israel demonstrates themselves to be very distrustful and very self-reliant in this passage, God demonstrates himself to be exceedingly trustworthy. Um, And I would suggest to you that we see this in the way that he feeds his people here in this story. But also we see it as we look at the kind of person that Jesus revealed himself to be. And you know, Jesus says later in in the book of John, he says, if you want to know what my father is like, you already know because you've seen me. The father is in me and I'm in the father. Like if you want to know what God the father is like, what he would be like if he walked around on this earth. Look at Jesus. They're not, they don't have different personalities in the sense of like, I mean, they are separate persons. One God, three persons, father, son, spirit. But all the things that are true about God, the father's character and how he acts and loves and lives are true about Jesus. And do you know what, what Jesus does at the very beginning of his ministry? It's very interesting. Just like God takes Moses and the people of Israel, he brings them through the waters of the Red Sea and then sends them into the wilderness. Jesus begins his ministry by going into the waters of the Jordan River. And there he's baptized. It's his... In in many ways, it's the beginning of Jesus's Exodus story. He goes into the waters of the Jordan. And then do you know where he goes right after he's baptized? The Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit that led God's people into the wilderness in the book of Exodus, leads Jesus into the wilderness. And there he's tempted by Satan. And the first temptation of Satan, when Jesus is in the wilderness... Jesus is hungry. He hasn't eaten anything. And Satan shows him. He says, I bet you want some bread. 
You could turn that rock into bread if you wanted. Just do it. And Jesus says this. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, I am fully dependent on my Father, and I don't do what I want. I do what he wants. Jesus is fully self-reliant, or not fully self-reliant. He's fully reliant on the Father. Um, what that means, what this means is God doesn't ask you to go through something that he himself hasn't already also done. He brings us into the wilderness, but we see that Jesus has also gone into the wilderness for us, if you're a Christian. But here's the thing, that doesn't make him fully trustworthy yet. That just makes him empathetic. What makes him fully trustworthy is that he's both empathetic and he can do something about your hunger fully and finally. In John 6, after Jesus has fed 5,000 people bread, a story that echoes all that happens in the book of Exodus, people show up the next day and they ask Jesus for a sign that they might know that he's divine. They say, uh, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And they reference the story that we just read. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. This is Jesus' response. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What this means is that Jesus doesn't just empathize with your hunger in the wilderness, because he does. He does empathize with you if you're in the wilderness right now. He was a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. He empathizes with you. But not only that, the reason that he's trustworthy is that he's come to do something to take the wilderness away. To come and take all the things that are wrong in this world away. And the way that he ultimately does it is he gives away his body. On the night before Jesus is going to the cross to give up his life, to go literally to go into the wilderness of death to save us. He picks up bread and he looks at his disciples and he breaks the bread and he says, this bread is my body, which is broken for you. Take it, eat it. What Jesus is doing is he's showing them the way that your hunger will fully be filled. The way that your eternal hunger will finally be satisfied. The way that you can stop looking out for yourself and being worried about if you're going to have enough. The way that you can have eternal security is through me. And so he gives himself to us. Why? Because he loves you. Um, so Daniel Solomon, the kid I told you about, he was asked to speak later in his life, in his 20s, about how he changed. 
Um, he talks about the attachment therapy um, that worked and that was so helpful for him. And then um, in the end of the recording, he's speaking to a crowd of people who are listening to him. And it's the only time that this guy becomes emotional when you hear him talk. He's not an emotional person. Uh, But he says this, before I finish, I'd like to thank two people, my mom and dad. Um, The reason that I am here today and the kind of person I am today is because of you. Mom, and there's like 15 seconds of silence because he can barely speak. I can never thank you enough for all the places you've taken me to. Even when I absolutely refused to go, I always had fun when I got there. Dad, you're one heck of a guy to put up with a crazy family like this. You guys are both amazing. I love you very much, says the kid who the counselor said would never be able to love. His mom, Heidi, says it was without a doubt the most spectacular moment of my life, hearing him say that. You see, what God does is he gives us time in. He gives us time in with him in the wilderness, not because he's mean, not because he's holding out, but because he's teaching you that the only thing that you need is him. The only thing that will satisfy you is him. So he takes us into the wilderness because he loves us, because he wants us to be full, to be safe, to be loved. And he is the only one he can, who can do that. So rest and depend on him alone. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much that uh, you are a God who meets us in the wilderness, who walks with us in our fears, um, in our anxieties who welcomes us to rest um, and who gives us all that we need, our daily bread. And we thank you that you ultimately did that through giving us Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.